name is Dave. I'm a participating member here at Warehouse, and if you're just joining us for the first time, which maybe some of you are, welcome. We're glad that you're here. I don't know, how many of you are early risers on a Sunday morning, even though you don't have to be? Anybody here? A few? Well, you lucky few this morning. If you got up and looked out the window, you would have seen fog. <laughs> and I want to give you a little tidbit, a little factoid about fog. Here's the thing about fog. Fog itself is a fun thing. I like fog. It creates this mystery. You drive into Uptown, it's like it's just a village because it doesn't extend above like the eighth floor. It's nice. But the word fog itself, I think is a little bit blah. It's pedestrian, if I may use the word. My family and I got to live in Scotland for a while, and when we were there, we learned a really cool term for fog, especially fog that comes in off the water. And I thought I would introduce that to you so that you could incorporate it into conversation with friends and family when fog happens again. That word is har. Yeah. If you want to say it out loud, you can har. Yeah, huh? Just drop the D from hard and har. It makes you sound like a pirate, but it's also just really, I think, a lot more engaging than the word fog. So try to work that in with friends and family. You have arrived here at Warehouse the third week into a series that we call, I guess that's where you lost me. And the idea behind it is that church, as of late, has been a place that rather than people dropping into it, a lot of people have dropped out, and for a variety of reasons, for reasons stemming from beliefs that are espoused that people are confused about, or they just they don't know what it means. Or it might be that people have said or done things within the church that have been hurtful or harmful, and they've wanted to flee. Or it could be that people just think it's not the place to find deep, true, authentic spirituality. It's not a place to engage with God. On this faith spectrum, those three camps, you can see people as being skeptics. They're skeptical, but maybe they want to know more could be that they're nomads. They've, they've had experiences that hasn't worked, so they're wandering, they're looking, they're seeking. Or they're fighters, people who desperately want a deep, engaged faith, but the church hasn't been the place for it. So in this series, there's been an attempt to try and address some of those concerns, some of those things that make church not have that sticky quality, that quality where you come in, you want to stay, you want to be a part of it, you want to invest. And in a moment, the band is going to play a song that ties in with that. The title of this song, get ready for some numbers, people. The title of the song has four letters. The YouTube video of it has been viewed nearly one billion times, 890 million. And I was one of those yesterday. And in the original version, if you count... I believe there are at least 105, I say at least because they might have slipped in some others, at least 105 occurrences of the word O. Oh. Any guesses as to what this song might be? Those of you who were on the women's retreat last week, any guesses? Callie, any guess? The song is Roar by Katy Perry. Yeah, yeah, Katy Perry's number one worldwide smash hit. It's a very catchy song. It has a good beat. And I don't know about you, but it's not the deepest song that's ever been written. <laughs> maybe that's, I'm not a hater, but maybe this is my personal opinion. Here's the reality. 
we're going to have the words up on the screen. You can judge for yourself. Within this song, the reason we're using it is because within this song, there are just a few cliches, just a couple, just a handful. <laughs> and one of the things that's happened within the church is that we have taken to using cliches as opposed to going deeper. And in the process, we have a danger of becoming a cliche. So we're going to take a look at this song, engage with it, enjoy Roar, Josh, <laughs> and welcome to Warehouse. I did see a few people walking in during that, like, is this a church? <laughs> They're playing Roar. So if you, if you came in late, here's the deal. Not the brightest song in the world. Uh, super popular. We've chosen it because it is basically a long string of cliches. I just look at that first verse again if you weren't in here. I used to bite my tongue and hold my breath. Scared to rock the boat and make a mess. So I sit quietly, agree politely. I guess forgot I had a choice. Let you push me past the breaking point. I stood for nothing, so I fell for everything. What? What does that mean? And another number for you on this song, five writers. Five writers. And you think, really? But to be blunt, the point of the song is not to write Pulitzer Prize winning lyrics. The point is to sell a song, to make popular music, and to write a song that sells. And people like cliches. And so Katy Perry delivers cliches. I found this article. This guy went through the entire album, Prism, and counted all the cliches. He counted 226 cliches in this album. And these are marketable. They sell. Why, though? Why are we so drawn to cliches? Why do we use them? Why, why does that become a part of our, our lingo? Loads of reasons, I'm sure. Here's just a few. We use cliches because can make us feel smart without expending too much energy. Uh, we use cliches because they, they make us feel good on various levels. Sometimes we use cliches just because that's what people say in response to things. So it just becomes habit. There's a cue, someone says something, your routine is, I say this. And the reward is everybody feels good. Uh, we use cliches because they're convenient. They give you something to say when you really don't know what to say. And I was thinking about that point and remembered Ellen DeGeneres' skit, brilliant skit, where she talks about how if there's some sort of passionate discussion going on and you dive in and it's a long discussion, people batting back and forth, all these ideas, and you get to the middle somewhere and you realize, I have no idea what we're talking about. I don't even know what my point was supposed to be in this discussion. And so you, wanna, you start panicking because you want to get out. And so you, just, you, you use these cliche closers. Like, well, six to one, half dozen the other. Uh, it's a slippery slope, my friends. You know, and teach a man to fish and there's no YN team. I'm out of here. Some of the reasons we use cliches, some, some are dumb, some make sense. But what is a cliche, actually? Webster Dictionary defines cliche as a phrase or an expression that's been used so often that it's no longer original, interesting, or even substantial. So the cliches are these overused phrases that don't mean much anymore. They used to, maybe. Clichés used to be original. Maybe it was, it was a beautiful metaphor someone found or, or some phrase that, that re was really catchy. And then they were used over and over and over and over again. And people forgot, why do I say this again? Uh, the French poet Gerard de Naval once remarked, 
The first man to compare a woman to a rose was a poet. The second, an imbecile. <laughs> Thank you. It's a good reaction. Uh, men, if you want to praise your lady, don't use cliches. You know that. And vice versa, it's, it's not creative. Oh, here's some other famous cliches you probably all know. The grass is always greener on the other side. A picture is worth a thousand words. Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. The early bird catches the worm. Good writers know that if you want to actually be published, don't use cliches. Uh, Steven Pinker, who, who wrote The Sense of Style, he said, avoid cliches like the plague. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> Why, though? Why? Because if you're using cliches, it means you haven't thought about it. You know, you're being lazy. You're not really trying. Um, cliches are evidence of shallow thought. And here's the kicker. Christians use a lot of cliches. Uh, let's just be honest. There's a lot of Jesus jargon out there. Things we say, stuff Christians say. Um, how about some of these? God never gives us more than we can handle. Really? It was a God thing. As if the other stuff wasn't. Um, when did you ask Jesus into your heart? God meant it for good. Love the sinner, hate the sin. Let's pray a hedge of protection around you. <laughs> some, some of these are a bit more humorous than others, of course. And that one in particular, uh, the comedian Lee Hawkins had a heyday about this one. Uh, he, he said, a hedge? Really? I mean, come on, Christians. We can do better than that. All right, well, how about a cement wall with some bad boy razor wire on the top of it? I mean, is the devil going to be deterred by some shrubbery? And it's, it's good to laugh at the stuff we say. I, I, need, I need to laugh at the stuff I say, how, you know, no matter how corny it is sometimes. Um, but there is a serious side to that as well. A serious side to the things we say that can really hurt people. A personal example, when my nine-year-old niece died in a car accident, um, people, of course, tried to comfort my sister and, and her husband and the family, um, trying to think of things to say. You know, in, the, in that moment and in their, their ongoing grief. Um, but often people use cliches to try to do that. Um, and, and they hurt way more than they helped. Things like, well, at least she's in a better place. Um, God will get you through this. Uh, those are like stabs to the heart for someone who's experiencing deep grief. Uh, even though they're, they're well-intentioned, they're meant to soothe, um, if tempted to use a cliche, don't speak in situations like that. Uh, and thankfully, very thankful for this, uh, that experience, that whole tragedy in my sister's life and the way people responded to it did not drive them away from the church or from faith. Uh, but it could have, and I'm sometimes surprised that it didn't. That's really what we're looking at in this series. We're looking at things that have driven people away from the church and, and really Christian faith in general. And we're basing this on David Kinnaman's research. David Kinnaman is the president of the Barner Group, Barner Research Group, and he has a book called You Lost Me, which is about this phenomenon, about, about dropouts, particularly within the millennial generation. 
And he, he traces these six different disconnections that have caused people to pull away and to either reject just church or, or faith entirely. So last week, we looked at the disconnection of overprotectiveness, um, when the church withdraws into a safe huddle and we talked about the need to, to risk, to, to, to model the risk and the joy of cultural engagement. This week, we're addressing the disconnection of, excuse me, of shallowness. And Kinnaman's research has shown that many people have reached this, I guess that's where you lost me, moment when they, they perceive or they experience the church as shallow. Kinnaman writes this to, to describe it. He says, easy platitudes, proofed texting, formulaic slogans have anesthetized many young adults, leaving them with no idea of the gravity and power of following Christ. And not just young adults, of course. Um, formulaic slogans, easy platitudes, cliches. And not just cliches themselves. We need to think about where they come from. We've talked about a lot of reasons why we might use cliches, and some of them are, are maybe not that, as, that serious, but um, there is a serious side of this, the, the fact that I believe cliches are a symptom of shallow faith. Deep faith doesn't need cliches. And a deep church full of people with deep faith will be the kind of community that draws and keeps people. And a shallow church full of people with shallow faith will be the kind of community that drives people away. Now, if you're one of those people that's been repelled for whatever reason by this experience of shallow Christianity, uh, first of all, I'm really glad you're here because maybe that means that you hope there's something else, that that wasn't an accurate representation of what the church is, what Christianity is. And you're right, it's not. There is more. And so I'm glad you're here. I hope that you hear this morning and experience here at Warehouse and throughout this series a different kind of vision for what the church can and should be and what God is calling us to. And I want to explore today, for the rest of the time then, the, the difference between a shallow faith and a deep faith. And I hope that'll be something that is as intriguing and enticing, perhaps, if you're just exploring Christianity, that maybe your impression of shallow Christianity isn't, um, you know, I don't doubt that you've experienced that, but it's not the way it's supposed to be. Um, and for those of you who have been following Jesus for a while, a part of the church, uh, whether as a nomad or someone who's a fighter, uh, I think this is going to be a, a good challenge for you, a challenge to cultivate deep faith and to resist whatever shallow alternatives are so tempting. And I'm going to look at this through the lens of one of Jesus' parables, one of his short stories, uh, one that's maybe the, one of the most well-known. It's about farming, and not many of his core disciples were farmers, and so some of this would have struck them as strange. It's okay if it strikes you as strange as well, uh, but there's some beautiful images in here. It's found in, in three of Jesus' biographies in the Newer Testament. It's pretty much the same in every account, but I'm going to focus on Matthew's account. That's found in chapter 13 of his biography. So I'm going to read this first, and then we'll see how it addresses this, this theme. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. And he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. 
As he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it didn't have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil, where it produced crop, 160, 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Now, without Jesus' explanation, you'd be like, hear what? (laughs) You know, I don't get that. And that's how a lot of Jesus' parables are. You kind of have to let it sit for a while and, and soak it in. But Jesus actually gives us the explanation for this one. It's very nice of him. We don't have to, you know, stay in mystery here. And I'm going to read that explanation as well, verses 18 to 23. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, They last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. It sinks in. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding 160 or 30 times what was sown. Okay, the seed then that Jesus is referring to in this story is a message. He calls it the message of the kingdom. It's the good news that Jesus was teaching all throughout ancient Palestine. Uh, In fact, right when Jesus went public with that mission, Matthew provides a summary statement of what Jesus was doing. I think it's good to realize uh, what's going on here. Matthew writes in chapter 4 that Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So even when it describes Jesus' teaching, it identifies the core as this this good news of the kingdom. To get at what that means, I think it's helpful to look at Mark's biography. Mark records the words of John the Baptist, which is, I think, the shortest summary in the Bible of what this good news of the kingdom means. Uh, It says, The kingdom of God has come near. It's not far away. It's near. That's the good news. Repent and believe the good news. So that's the shortest, but let me expand on that a little bit. The essence of what Jesus was teaching in terms of this message of the kingdom, uh, Jesus was teaching this. So ever since the world has been messed up by human pride and sin, God has been on a mission to make it new, a mission to make all things new. And that began in, in the remarkable story of the Hebrew people that's recorded in the Older Testament, but that was incomplete. Um, Jesus is saying that story is incomplete. I have come to complete that story. I have come to to usher in this kingdom and to rule over it, to complete the story. And I'm going to prove my authority to do that by dying and rising again. So repent, which means don't try to align your life, to reorder your life apart from me. And believe, embrace that good news. Uh, pledge allegiance to me. Align your life with my, my kingdom values. That's the message that Jesus is going around teaching. It's the seed that Jesus is talking about in this parable. Uh, he's scattering. 
Uh, and it's important to realize that this is not therapeutic good advice. Jesus is not scattering a message that says, here's a tidbit of truth for you. Receive this, feel good about yourself, achieve everything that you dream you can be. That's not it. Jesus is is scattering life-altering news of something that has happened, that he has arrived to usher in this kingdom. The kingdom of God has arrived. So will you respond to that and become a different person? Will you let that change you? Those are the stakes, and Jesus introduces these four possible responses in the parable. As I go through these, you might want to think about, where am I? How am I responding, even in this very moment, to that message of Jesus? The the options are, you can respond with no faith, you can respond with shallow faith, with divided faith, or with deep faith. Let me explain those a little bit more. So the first one, it's like that seed that falls on the hard path. Uh, The message bounces off. Uh, Whether for some sort of bent you have against the message uh, because you think it's not true, uh, because you just think it's silly, because you don't understand it, for whatever reason, you don't want anything to do with it. Um, Those are people with no faith, unreceptive to Jesus' message. Another option, though, is, is like the seed that falls on rocky soil. You might receive this as good news at first. But you don't really take it seriously. Uh, you don't cultivate it. You don't explore it. You don't try to understand it. You don't make connections for, for the implications in every area of life. And so basically your faith withers. Uh, there's not much to it. It doesn't produce much fruit. These are people of shallow faith, people who are not deeply impacted by Jesus' message. Third, though, the seed that falls among the thorns and weeds, this is the people who would receive this good news um, with joy, Jesus says, so with enthusiasm, all in. But it's just one bit of good news among other bits of good news in your life, other commitments, other allegiances. Um, and because of that, because faith is just one thing, and then there's all of these other things, uh, it gets choked out. It, it doesn't have room to grow and breathe. It gets eclipsed. So these are people with divided faith, people who are not solely committed in, in a preeminent, you know, so primary commitment kind of way to the good news of Jesus. And then there's that last one, the seed that falls on good soil. It, it, this is the best scenario, right? This is where the seed germinates. It, it grows there's a healthy plant, becomes incredibly fruitful, and these are the people that Jesus is saying have deep faith, faith that um, takes root at the core of who you are. The way I see it, there's, it's a spectrum for sure, but in the middle, that's kind of all the same for me. Shallow faith, divided faith, it's, it's really just shallow faith there in the middle, and it's a spectrum from then no faith to deep faith with shallow in the middle. And what I want to do the rest of the time is really explore what's the difference, really, between shallow faith and deep faith. And I want to tease out the, the soil metaphor a little bit more to help us imagine what, what this difference is. So shallow faith, it's only going to be fruitful in the best conditions, in the best weather. Uh, but deep faith is going to produce all year round. 
shallow faith focuses only on what's above ground, but deep faith begins with what's underground. Um, shallow faith is, is surrounded by all these weeds that compete for the same nutrients, whereas deep faith tries to keep that area clear from any nutrient-draining competition to faith. Um, shallow faith struggles with all kinds of things that want to eat it alive, all kinds of critters, right? But deep faith acts as a natural repellent to any of those things that try to attack it because they're going to go for the weaker ones first. Um, shallow faith needs all these unnatural chemicals to survive. Deep faith can thrive organically. The longer shallow faith continues, the harder you have to work to keep it alive. Uh, but the longer deep faith continues, the stronger it becomes. Now, when imagining the difference there, I think that the major difference comes down to the kind of soil. Now, that's Jesus' point in the story. The seed doesn't change. It's the soil. So the major difference between shallow faith and deep faith is the condition of the soil. And soil here stands for the core of who you are. You, know, you might say your heart, but we don't want to be cliche, so I'm explaining it. Um, your heart, your deepest allegiances, your, your commitments, your desires, your beliefs, your core. And deep faith is about receiving the good news of the kingdom at your core, having that penetrate the core of who you are, and, and from there, having it transform everything else, you know, your lifestyle and everything else about who you are. And really, as, Je as Jesus presents it, this is the only genuine option. Um, the only option that will last. Because shallow faith is always in danger of, of dying and moving to the left side of that spectrum to no faith. So the question is, how do we cultivate the kind of soil in which deep faith can grow. You know, not how can I muster up enough creativity and strength to, to deepen my faith? Uh, it's taking a step back and realizing it's the soil that matters. We need to cultivate that. So how can the core of who you are, your, your, your heart, your allegiances, your commitments, your values, get plowed up and prepared and fertilized and watered so that faith can really germinate and put down deep roots? That's the question. And I want to try to answer that really practically. But before I do, I need to address a pretty big mystery that surrounds all of that. A mystery that's at the heart of, of Christian life as a whole. And the mystery is this, that it's God who does the cultivating. Uh, God is the one who plows up the core of who you are to make you receptive to the good news. He's the one who helps that faith take root and, and helps it grow. So if anything actually happens in terms of fruitfulness in your life, that's God's work. Yet, he does that work through your efforts. That's the mystery. They're happening at the same time. It's all God, and yet everything you do matters. To be really theological, it's 100% God's sovereignty, and it's 100% human responsibility. That's biblical logic. 100% and 100% equals 100% in the Christian faith. Now, you can't let go of either side of that. 
when we're talking about growing in faith and cultivating faith or anything in the Christian life. So um, that mystery in mind and realizing that this is God's work, back to the question, how do I cultivate the kind of soil, the core of who I am, where, where deep faith can really take root and grow? And I hope what I'm going to say now, I'm just going to mention two practical things. I could, I could talk about loads of things. Um, but I hope what I'm going to say is uh, relevant to you wherever you are on that spectrum of faith. So if you're exploring Christianity, I hope you can see that this, is, um, this might seem basic, but you can actually try these things, even if you don't believe. Um, just to see what happens, to explore, to, to see what happens in the core of who you are. Um, and if you are already following Jesus, this is essential. Okay? Two practical things. The first is making repentance a daily routine. Mark said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe. These are not one-off events. This is, in the Greek, it's literally continue repenting, continue believing. Have a lifestyle of repenting and a lifestyle of believing. Now, when I say repent, I don't mean saying you're sorry. Right? That's apologizing. Repentance is this deep core thing. That is about recognizing there's something about the human condition that means we are inherently turned in, curved in on ourselves. We want to make ourselves number one. And repentance is about saying, that's a dead end. I can't experience fullness of life, curved in on myself, trying to make myself number one. Uh, Because if that's true, you don't need any help. You don't need God's help. You don't need to serve others, um, very limited worldview and a very limited way to live. You don't need God to make things new in your life. So that repentance, recognizing that you have that inherent problem, is like hoeing. Uh, it's like softening up the, the soil of your heart, get ready, getting rid of the weeds so that deep faith can actually take root. Because if you don't repent, uh, why receive any message about what God is doing? To make all things new, right? Repentance comes first. Recognizing your selfishness, naming the ways that you fall short of God's intention for us to love him and love people, and then turning toward God and saying, I want you to make things new in my life. So if repentance is like hoeing, I would suggest that the Bible is like the water that makes the seed sprout and grow. And that might seem kind of strange to you. Like, why the Bible? seems like a very Christian thing to say. It is. <laughs> um, but there's really good reasons for it. Because the Bible is the story that tells us that the way that God actually communicates to us about our human condition, about the story of his mission to make all things new, and how Jesus is at the center of all of that. And so the more that you soak in the world of the Bible the more you're going to be able to grasp your own condition and get the good news as well. And you'll realize that in this story, not everything is simple. Not everything is tied up in nice, neat bows. There's a lot of complexity. And so it's really dangerous to pull out a Bible verse and kind of assume that applies immediately to all these situations and make it a cliché. Something else, immersing ourselves in the world of the Bible, in the world of the Bible does, is uh, helps us 
not proof text, like Kinnaman says, pulling things out, saying, well, this proves that this and this that I think and this other thing that I think. Um, but actually, it roots us in the story out of which our faith grows. So it's, the Bible is not this source book for convenient principles. It's not a source book for cliches, for sure. Um, it's a story that tells us why we need God, that Jesus is the center of God's mission to make all things new, and he wants us to have a part of it. But you're not going to really get that unless we're in it, immersing ourselves in that world. One last thing, let me come back to cliches and this farming metaphor. I think there's another way to think about cliches then in this whole picture. Cliches are to faith as pesticides are to plants. They might provide this temporary solution, but they're a poor substitute for cultivating the soil, for caring for the soil. They become this band-aid, this surface fix, this way to exist in an unhealthy situation. So rather than just using words that make our faith seem health healthy, that make us sound good, that make us seem like Christians, the challenge is for those who are following Jesus and are a part of the Christian community is encouraging and challenging one another to cultivate the kind of soil where deep faith can actually grow, to challenge each other to look at the core of who we are and if the gospel has penetrated there, if the good news has sunk in and is then transforming us from the inside out and to challenge each other toward those very practical daily routines, repenting, immersing ourselves in the world of the Bible. If that kind of thing is happening, that's the kind of community we are, we're not going to need cliches. So let's pray. Father, sometimes it's easy to forget that there is a much bigger story going on than mine, uh, than ours, than the story of Warehouse, than the story of Charlotte, than your, your story is world-encompassing, and you are the main character, and you are on a mission to make all things new. It's good to remember that. But it's hard to believe that sometimes, especially when we hear about something like an earthquake in Nepal that kills thousands of people, and we just wonder, okay, where is your kingdom? Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on the people who still can't find family members and friends. Um, guide the rescue team as they find those people, those who are trapped and injured. Give them mercy. And we claim the reality, despite those tragedies, that you are making your kingdom come in our midst. And your desire is for deep faith to take root in our lives so that we experience that and we take part in the story. Um, but we need to admit the fact we're often complicit in rejecting that. Um, forgive us for all the ways that we've been content or, or maybe even unaware of shallow faith, comfortable with cliches. And forgive us for all the ways that we might have driven people away because of that. We want the core of who we are 
to receive the good news and make us good news people. So cultivate the core of who we are, get it ready, um, stir us and wake us up to get to work and, and do that work ourselves of, of clearing out the weeds and plowing up the soil and uh, watering it with your word. Uh, we long for deep faith because we know deep faith will last. Uh, deep faith isn't fake. Deep faith doesn't need to be sustained by anything artificial. And deep faith is what will be effective in your world. Um, so I pray that you make Warehouse 242 a community that is full of people with deep faith. Um, people who make repentance a part of who they are. People who make um, the biblical world their world um, because it reveals who you are. And people who don't need cliches. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So for the benediction, I want to give uh, a passage from Jeremiah, a prophet Jeremiah. And, but before I do, just one quick word. Uh, I said a lot about what cliches are, but it's also good to mention, you know, we're not talking about metaphors in general or deep truths or, you know, there's a lot of metaphors and deep truths in the songs we sang. And the reason why they're not cliches is because we really mean them. Um, we've thought about them. They come from the Bible. And metaphors in general, I mean, it's taking something strange to help us understand something familiar. So just because something is strange doesn't mean it's a cliche. I guess that's my encouragement to you. A lot of strange things in the Christian language. Uh, that doesn't mean that it's all cliche. Uh, so why don't you stand with me, and I'm going to send you out with this benediction, which uses that same image, uh, an agricultural image, making strange what's familiar about the faith that we have. So receive this. Blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. They will be like a tree planted by the water that sends out its roots by the stream. It does not fear when heat comes. Its leaves are always green. It has no worries in a year of drought. And it never fails to bear fruit. Go in grace. And if you're a member, please sit down. <laughs> Everyone else can take off. Well, you members are sitting. I'm going to keep talking because I want